how we think about money impacts what we do with money. And for many of us, what we think about money is influenced by narratives, frameworks, and biases we picked up well before we started our businesses. I'm Tara McMullen, and you're listening to What Works, the show that digs deep into what's really working to run and grow a small business today, from how we market and manage to how we prime our mindset for success. Now, the money framework I picked up as a kid was that I could either make a lot of money or I could do what I love. Now, no one sat me down and told me I was destined to barely scraping by if I didn't choose a lucrative career that I didn't like very much. But my little kid brain chewed on everything that I was being told and interpreted it that way. I could either make a lot of money or I could do something that I loved for work. Now, my idealist teenage brain told me that I was not going to be one of those people who chose to make a lot of money. So I settled on a major I loved and a career path I thought would bring me fulfillment even if I'd be struggling for the rest of my life. When I started to have major doubts about that career path, I had to go back to the drawing board. And that's what eventually led me to starting my own business. And even in that process, that either or money framework was still doing its work and keeping me down. It took real work to start to replace either or with both and. And truthfully, that work continues to this day. Now, today, I know that I can do work that I love and make a lot of money. But I struggle with a similar either or framework. Either I can compromise my values so I can make a lot of money easily or I can hold fast to my values and turn making a lot of money into a struggle. Today, I'm working to replace that framework with one that reminds me that I can hold fast and find abundance with ease. I know embracing that money narrative is the key to the next phase of my business and my life. This week, we asked members of the What Works Network to share one thing they thought they knew about money, but later discovered wasn't true. Each shared a narrative or bias that held them back from fully embracing their business and their earning potential. As you listen, consider which of these narratives are ones you're currently operating with and how you could start reevaluating them. What would you do differently if you reprogrammed these money thoughts? What decisions would you make if you claimed a new money narrative? You'll hear from Charlene Lamb, a curator and social media strategist, Maggie Patterson, the founder of Scoop Studios, Carol Hamilton, the founder of Grace Social Sector Consulting, and Anna Wolf, the founder of Superscript Marketing. Let's start with Anna. Anna's money programming is familiar to plenty of heart-centered creatives, the fear of becoming a sellout. So confession, I have always felt like a sellout. I came to the financial services industry from nonprofit early in my career because I had a pile of student loans to repay, and I frankly just needed to make more money. I initially thought, okay, I'll pay my student loans back, and then I'll go back to school to become a high school English teacher. I wanted to make a positive difference in the world, and I was pretty sure that working in financial services was not the path to doing so. But then time passed. It took me almost a decade to pay off those loans. And in the meantime, I learned a lot got better at my job, was promoted, made good friends in the workplace. After a while, it seemed really irresponsible to throw it all away for an entirely new career path. And it wasn't like I hated my job. In fact, over the years, I was able to finagle my way into a role where I was writing for a living, which was a dream I'd never even allowed myself to have. Granted, I was writing about investment products and the stock market rather than great literature and fiction, which was way more my jam. But still, the topics were interesting, and I felt lucky to be a paid writer. 
it wasn't heart centered, but at least I felt like I was doing the responsible thing for my personal finances. After my son was born, though, I realized pretty quickly that Wall Street work-life balance, or lack thereof, was not going to cut it anymore. With the support of my husband and the security of our rent-controlled apartment, I quit my job to become a freelance financial writer. And seven years later, I own a small financial marketing agency with four employees and a dozen or so freelancers. I'm proud of my business. We're really good at what we do. But more importantly, I love that Superscript provides flexible, well-paid jobs for talented people, mostly women who, for whatever reason, can't do the nine-to-five commute-to-an-office thing. Our company is entirely remote, extremely mom-friendly, and offers our employees important benefits like health insurance and a 401k plan. And yet... Despite feeling proud of what I've built with Superscript, I've always had this ambivalence about it. I could never shake that selling out feeling. It doesn't help that the financial services industry is a source of distrust in some of my social circles outside of work. When I tell strangers what I do for a living, I cringe at the note of apology in my tone. It's like I want to be proud of what I've accomplished, but I'm constantly wondering if other people think I sold out too. And then coronavirus happened, and like everyone else, I started to question everything, even more so than I did before. Life is short. People are suffering. Am I really doing what I'm meant to be doing in this world? But over the course of a few weeks, I had this gradual realization. Here I am, working in an industry full of men in suits, but with a decidedly feminist business model that's the opposite of that. Here I am, someone who knows a little something about how the financial system works, and who actually cares about using that knowledge to help those who've been ostracized by it. Maybe all these years that I judged myself for selling out, and I held my career and business at arm's length and thought, that's not really me, that's just how I make money. There was a heart-centered mission lurking beneath the surface. Because here I am, in a position to help people, maybe even help change the system from the inside, at a time when the system is clearly failing so many. My perspective on my business, which used to be just the way I make money, has shifted. I used to think it was either or, you're Mother Teresa or you're selling out. Now I think it can be both. I think that as business owners, we have so much power to change the world simply by invoking the change we want to see within our own businesses. I'm exploring all the ways I can use my voice, my small platform, my network, and my privilege to ignite the change I'd like to see in the world. And I'm grateful to Superscript for being the vehicle that allows me to do so. Do you ever feel like a sellout as a business owner? Or do you fear the judgment of those who think you are? If you do, take a few minutes today to consider how that narrative is playing out in the decisions you've made for your business. Consider how feeling like a sellout has influenced your ability to step into greater success. Next up is Charlene Lamb. Charlene is a curator, social media strategist, and digital content consultant for creative companies. Charlene found herself operating in a money story she learned from her immigrant family. I believed that in order to have a successful business, you needed to be willing to sacrifice everything. And I no longer believe that. My grandparents, they immigrated from Hong Kong to New York City in the early 60s. In 1965, my grandparents saved enough money to open a Chinese hand laundry in Midtown Manhattan on 2nd Avenue between 37th and 38th Streets. My mother was 15 when she moved to America, and she and her siblings would help out in the laundry, both before and after school. 
And my grandparents made a success of that laundry. They saved up enough to buy their own house, cars, and travel. It was the story of the American dream realized, but it was also the story of extreme sacrifice. My grandparents worked six days a week, and when I was growing up, my mom and aunt always told me stories about just how hard my grandparents worked, about how my grandparents slept in the back room of the laundry for a while, while my mom and her siblings stayed with relatives or in a separate apartment. And as I got older, I realized that my mom and her siblings also sacrificed trading, helping out in the family laundry for focusing on their education and their schoolwork. The stories that my family told about the business really emphasized how much hard work was involved, how much sacrifice of time, uh, whether it was with your family or just leisure time. I think they were trying to instill the value of hard work in me, but also possibly warning me away from starting my own business and perhaps encouraging me to take a steady, safe job in a corporate environment, as a good Chinese-American girl should. So when I decided to start my own business, I had a lot of stories about money and what having a successful business would entail. I brought along this story of needing to do really hard work and being willing to sacrifice. In my case, I interpreted it as requiring possibly sacrificing my physical health and my mental health and even my marriage. There were some hard times uh, over the last decade. My mother died unexpectedly. I had some health issues. My anxiety got really bad. And I started to believe that having a successful business wasn't for me, that it would require the kind of sacrifice that my mind and body simply couldn't withstand. And then I started to hear from entrepreneurs who did things differently, who didn't rely on hustling or working all the time, who worked with their bodies and what their minds uh, needed. So I loved hearing from business owners who started businesses precisely because they were burnt out from the corporate world and hearing from women entrepreneurs who started businesses because they had chronic health conditions. And I saw that there were so many ways to build a business, that we have choices, that yes, hard work is required and there are trade-offs and opportunity costs, but that it doesn't have to require the kind of sacrifice I'd imagined. We are so lucky now to have so many ways to run our businesses, and yes, even from home. When my grandparents and the generations before them started their businesses, they had really limited opportunities. The laundry, restaurants, service work, those were their only options. And I like to look at it this way. Our ancestors packed money stories with them when they immigrated, and they passed them on to future generations. And we inherit some of them, sometimes without realizing it. The same way that we inherit vases, photographs, recipes, and as children of immigrants, I think it's important to be aware of those stories and to unpack them. We get to choose what we keep. And in the same way that we don't have to clutter our houses with inherited belongings that don't really work for us anymore, I think it's important that we don't clutter our minds with money stories that 
don't serve us for the lives that we actually want to live. I think an important part of what Charlene discovered in reprogramming the success framework is that she has the opportunity to make different choices. She can create her own success using her own path. She doesn't have to do it the way her grandparents did. Now, as you reflect on Charlene's story, ask yourself whether you're making your own choices or whether you're replicating choices that were made by others. Do you believe you can do things your own way? Or do you believe that you have to follow the trail that's already been blazed? Next up, we hear from Carol Hamilton, the founder of Grace Social Sector Consulting. But first, a word from our WhatWorks partners. What Works is brought to you by Mighty Networks. In the old days, my business saw huge spikes and big dips in revenue from month to month. If I was launching a program, my revenue numbers would be way up. Then after I was done launching, my expenses would spike as I paid out the costs of launching. And in between, I'd carefully balance the revenue from the program to cover the business's recurring costs each month and pay myself. And I was not great at this. <laughs> but a few years ago, I ditched the launch model for good and started building a business model that was based on predictable recurring revenue. With predictable recurring revenue each month, I know how to invest in our team, our growth, our ongoing education and causes we support. How did I make the switch from the launch model to recurring revenue? We switched to Mighty Networks. The WhatWorks Network is a paid subscription network hosted on the Mighty Networks platform. Mighty Networks has made it easy for us to provide ongoing value, events, conversations, and connections for our members, which makes it possible for them to invest in the community month after month. With a Mighty Network, you can also create predictable recurring revenue for your small business. Support your clients, bring your audience together, share your knowledge, and lead your community, all for a simple monthly or annual fee and build a stable base for your business's revenue. Plus, you can also sell online courses and add to your bottom line. To find out just how a Mighty Network could transform your business, go to MightyNetworks.com. That's MightyNetworks.com. What Works is also brought to you by Yellow House Media. Now look, I am passionate about podcasting. I love hearing from experts, storytellers, comedians, politicians, journalists, and everyday folks who share the vulnerable details of their lives and work. I also love everything that podcasting has done for me. It's expanded my network. It's introduced my work to new audiences. It's helped me close sales, and it's helped me explore new perspectives in my industry. Podcasting is an incredibly powerful medium, and that's why last summer, my husband Sean and I started Yellow House media. We're on a mission to help people use their voices in new ways. And we do that by combining over a decade of content and marketing strategy experience with deep knowledge of audio content. At Yellow House Media, we help small business owners create exceptional in-depth content that also drives their business goals. And we call that standout podcast strategy. On July 9th at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific, I'm hosting a free live workshop on crafting your standout podcast strategy. Whether you've been podcasting for a while and you're looking to level up and leverage your show to grow your business, or you've been thinking about starting a podcast and you want to get started with a solid plan, this workshop is for you. Here's what we're going to cover. 
We're going to cover the four key parts to a standout podcast strategy and how to leverage them to grow your business. We'll cover how the premise of your podcast can enhance the positioning of your brand, why intentionally crafting your relationship to listeners can help you close sales with the right people, how to choose content that makes buying from your business a logical next step, and why your call to action should be to buy more often than not. To join me, go to yellowhouse.media and click free workshop in the navigation. That's yellowhouse.media and then click free workshop. Now on to Carol Hamilton, the founder of Grace Social Sector Consulting. Carol helps nonprofits make a greater impact for their mission with strategy and facilitation. Carol's money framework is one I've been unpacking a lot lately, too. It's rooted in our society's bias toward more. Earlier this year, when I read Yuval Noah's Harari's book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, I was reminded that money is simply a social construct, an idea that we all agree to participate in. People invented it to ease the exchange of goods. Trading and barter worked to some extent, but limited the range of people and goods you could access. In fact, one of the first items of writing in cuneiform from ancient Samaria in 3000 BC was not a poem or a religious tract or a song, it was a sales receipt. And since that time, we've moved from cattle and cowrie shells as currency to coins and bills. And when you say something is a social construct, it may be tempting then to think, well, it's not really real. And in fact, when I look at the numbers listed in my bank account and it hits me that they're created with zeros and ones and light in this digital economy, it can seem a little unreal. But just because something is a social construct doesn't mean it doesn't have real world impacts. Race is also a social construct and yet has deadly consequences for many. Those numbers in your bank account or lack of cash in your pocket defines your access to vital resources we all need to live, food, clothing, housing, healthcare, transportation, and other basics. Our world functions because we accept these ideas as reality and act accordingly. Our American culture idealizes the old mighty dollar and it favors those with money. Ours is one of the most, or the most, unfettered capitalist economy on the planet. It is oriented around the drive to accumulate more, more money, more wealth, more profit, more material good. Our economy is only good if it is growing. And these are just some of the assumptions that undergird our culture. Yet remembering these are all ideas enables me to shift my perspective. What if I shifted what drives me from more to enough? What if we oriented our culture to being more circular and sustainable instead of aiming for constant growth? What if we shifted to measuring gross national happiness instead of gross domestic product? What if we really valued human well-being? What if we truly valued the health of the planet? So personally, how does this show up for me? Rather than letting my net worth define my sense of worthiness, I try to orient my work and my life around these principles of sustainability. Defining my revenue goals by what will be enough to cover my family's basic needs, plus a little more to save for the future and for a little more for fun. Moving beyond the profit and loss statement and balance sheet to measure the health of my business to terms of the positive impact it has on my clients. 
shaping my workday, week, and year around what will support my well-being instead of just around productivity goals. Paying my fair share of taxes and advocating for government to use its funds for important investments in human well-being, in marginalized communities, and to protect our shared environment. Redistributing my wealth to organizations that are working towards building the world I want to live in. Making choices about where I shop and what I buy by keeping their impact in mind, both on people and the planet. And this is one I do, do do a lot, but I could do a lot more. From where I bank to how my retirement savings are invested, is my money being used by these financial institutions in line with my values or in total opposition to my values? These are the types of things that I try to keep in mind as I plan each day, each week, each month, and each year, and my business moving forward. I love what Carol shared because I think it's easy for enough to be its own limiting money belief. I see a lot of small business owners aim for enough because it seems safe and doable. But what Carol is saying, I think, is that enough is its own question. To truly aim for enough, you need to know what enough is, not just financially, but in every aspect of how you do business and how you live. What really is enough for you? Finally, let's hear from Maggie Patterson. Maggie is the founder of Scoop Studios, a content marketing firm and the host of Small Business Boss, a podcast that helps agency owners grow their businesses. Maggie shares that she's had to reprogram her beliefs around success requiring hard work. I started working at about the age of 13, and I've never really stopped working. Like most of us, I was taught from as early as I can remember, that hard work was essential to success. That to get what you want, you just work hard enough, you will get it. And for me, once I was my own boss, that classic entrepreneurial story that we all know of working hard to make big things happen, reinforced that. The endless stream of stories and emails, podcasts, books, movies, magazines told me over and over and over again that the best way for me to make more money was to simply work harder. For someone like me with a strong work ethic, that made me think I just needed to do more. More services, more clients, more marketing, and hey, why not add a course in there while I was at it? For me, the idea of just working harder to grow my business eventually hit a point of diminishing returns. I was not going to be able to make more money because there was not any more hours I was willing to work. So I started to dig into everything. I started unpacking it. And I really started with understanding revenue streams across all offerings to figure out what was profitable. And wow, I was in for a surprise. That meant examining all the inputs from team hours to deliver service, contracting costs, what was involved to find book clients for it, hidden costs related to the service such as tools and more. And what I found was that the majority of the revenue came from three offerings. The rest of the things we were offering was making everything. I mean, and I mean everything was so much harder than it needed to be. I was working way too hard, chasing things that were not moving the business ahead. And they definitely were not making us more money. So what that meant is I had to completely revamp how I run my agency Scoop Studios. And I had to let go of the idea that to work hard meant that was the only way to make more money. Because the numbers told me otherwise. I was literally creating extra work that did not need to happen and simple and streamlined would had to be the way ahead. So what did that revamp look like? 
it meant streamlining and limiting his services and really doubling down on what was profitable, letting go of the rest. As part of that, we also changed who we served and we niche down who we work with. So now we work with tech and professional services companies. We don't work with companies outside of those areas. And while those decisions were scary, they were ones that were right. The numbers backed me up. And over the course of 2019 and now in 2020, the numbers continue to back me up. For 2019, agency revenue increased about 40% year over year. And more importantly, our profit margin went way, way up. Freeing myself of the idea that hard work was the only way to make more money helped me make better decisions about money, both personally and professionally. I was able to untangle a lot of things going on there. In the business, I raised prices and that helped increase the total lifetime value of our clients and meant that we needed to serve fewer clients to meet our fairly aggressive revenue goals. And in this process, I realized how important it was to have the right numbers around cash, clients, and capacity. In fact, I recently just built out a KPR dashboard because this is ongoing work. I can see what really and truly matters. And I am really excited to see how that helps me make better money decisions and better overall business decisions. Plus, thanks to all of this, I am now extremely aware of how I spend my time And I stick to an average about 35 to 40 hours per week at the very most. And I often work more in the range of 20 to 30 hours per week. That has had an incredible impact on my life and my overall happiness. Untangling this idea that to make more money, I had to work so hard and I had to grind and hustle. Because while I love to work, it's not the only thing I want or need to be doing with my time. And that has been an incredible change. If you assume making more money or leveling up your business is going to require hard work, you're going to seek out hard work. Trust me, I know. So I love that Maggie shared that she worked on identifying the things that naturally flowed and created profit without all the stress and strain of hard work. That's not to say that hard work isn't valuable or even necessary, but it can't be the only barometer of whether something is valuable or the right course of action, because we'll just keep working harder and harder until we're burnt out and probably broke. So what money beliefs or narratives have you shifted as your business has evolved? What are you working on shifting right now? I'd love to hear from you. Reach out to me on Instagram. I'm at Tara underscore McMullen or find me on Twitter where I'm still Tara Gentili. Next week, we're starting a timely series on embracing uncertainty and finding the path to growth even when we don't know what's coming next. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Sean McMullen. This episode was edited by Marty Seafeld. Our production assistant is Kristen Runvik. Special thanks to Shannon Paris for additional production help. And thanks to Charlene Lamb, Maggie Patterson, Anna Wolf, and Carol Hamilton for their contributions. Find over 280 more episodes of What Works at explorewhatworks.com.